Our study in Revelation has been so rich in these days of celebrating Easter. And today we're in the last book of the Bible for our final week to see John's rendering of the most glorious picture ever recorded of the beautiful city of God. Although I didn't plan this, it's funny how each week that we've been in Revelation, I've told you about things that people have said to me as a pastor that are contrary to our study. It's been kind of a weird, unexpected theme that I didn't plan. Like how heaven is going to be boring because all we're going to be doing is praising God. I actually said that as a young person to my pastor right here, and he laughed at me. How we don't have to be in worship regularly to be with God. And how sad it is that there's no ocean, which might mean that there's no surfing. So here's one for today. Christians telling me how annoyed they get when people talk about God all the time. Kind of like the saying of how people can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Now this quote comes from Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., born in 1809, who made great contributions as a physician and also as a published author. And I couldn't find the exact context of why he said this, but Johnny Cash wrote a song about it. So it reminds us that it's kind of steeped in our American mindset. Now, Holmes was trying to get at something important here, I think. Christians who ignore the needs of the day. The self-righteous. Believers who don't listen to what the hurting person in front of them is saying, but throw scripture at them as a prescription for anything that ails them. Those who use spirituality as a shield or a weapon instead of being real with people. We get it. There's something about our passage today that cautions us about labeling others as too spiritual. There's something about quoting Holmes, I think, that reveals a lot about our own souls that we might not be willing to admit. Because sometimes how I hear the complaints about how other people are so spiritual, it kind of means that there's an unwillingness on the part of the person who's complaining to grow or to budge from being the center of their own universe. We all do that. Sometimes we distance ourselves from the Christians that we don't want to be aligned with or those that we perceive as just being too much. Oh, pastor, they're just too much. Again, do you know who you're talking to? Like, I talk about God all the time. That's my job. (laughs) Sometimes while it might have merit, God's in charge of them. We're in charge of us. And it might mean that we are, you know, need to seek him a little bit more. Because what Jesus teaches is that we are to orient ourselves and all of our lives around God. Because he is the most treasured. He is the most worthy. He is the most vital. And that we are to keep growing in what that means. But too often, we do it the other way around. Where we fit God into our lives and put ourselves at the center with Jesus as an add-on. But the scripture that we read today defies that false notion. It teaches us something different. It teaches us that God wants to be the center of our lives here. Because when we get to heaven, it's going to be all about him. The Lord is on the throne. The lamb is at the center of all adoration. We are the ones who accommodate to him our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, our behavior to his holiness. 
C.S. Lewis has a quote about this from his book, Christian Behavior. It says this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Woo! Bell preach. This is the word of the Lord from Revelation 21, verse 10, and then 21, 22 through chapter 22, verse 5. It's a little confusing, but if you open your Bible, you'll see it. All right, here we go. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for showing us your world. Give us ears to hear what your spirit, Lord, is saying to us today. Amen. As we talked last week, uh, chapters 17 through 20 of Revelation give us a shocking and graphic view of God's triumph over evil. And we talked about how the followers of Jesus can't just focus on the glorious parts of the end because the battle is going to be ugly and long with evil being unleashed everywhere and many being cast into the lake of fire. But God is faithful and victorious all the way through. And last week we talked about the new life that God is bringing to the new heaven and the new earth and the new life that he is bringing to us here. From our scripture today, we want to think about what God's house is like. We're into the summer, which means we often travel to see friends and family. And in our visits, we get to see how other people operate pretty up close, don't we? What their houses look like and how they live and what they watch and what they eat and how they spend their time. And we might love some of it. Some of it we might be like, whoa, that's weird. We might notice their idiosyncrasy. I can't say that word. <sighs> I said it when I was preaching it at my house. Anyway, we might notice their curiosities and how weird they are, and they might notice how weird we are. Let's put it that way. We get to see the essence, in other words, of who they are. 
So this reminded me that many years ago, someone was talking to Carrie Svoboda about why um, God doesn't let everyone go to heaven. And what she said wasn't new. It's been written and, and said before, but she said it kind of so adroitly that it stayed in my mind all these years later. Carrie said something like this. I'm, I'm paraphrasing her. I have permission to do this, by the way. She said, everyone is welcome in God's house. However, they might not want to go there. They have to know that it's about him and not them. It's a specific kind of place, full of love, of course, but also God's pure holiness. I would think, she said, that if someone didn't like me, they wouldn't want to come to my house. <laughs> it's the same with God. So maybe it isn't so much that God keeps people out as much as it is that they don't choose to go in. In this passage, John is giving us a view of what God's house is like. And the part that the lectionary skips over tell in detail a view of the city from the outside. And what they leave out is the description of the jewels and the gold and all of the foundations and the measurements of the new Jerusalem. And we can almost see the vibrancy up close. And I encourage you to read those verses because it captures our imagination. It's a stunningly grand place, a home that we would celebrate and look forward to living in. And of course, this is where we get streets of gold and pearly gates. There are actually pearls in the gates. So what is God's house like from our scripture today? Well, first, it is full of his presence. In the Jewish expectation of Messiah, the new temple would be the hub of the city. They had memorized prayers where they sought the renewal of the temple. But here John says that in the new Jerusalem, there is no need for a temple. The entire city is the dwelling place of God. Built like the holies of holy in, the, in a perfect cube where God's presence radiates from his throne in majesty and power. Now, because of the Lord's presence, there is no need for gates that close. Most cities in the ancient world would have had guarded fortresses where the gates would have been continually closed because of enemies and criminals and unwelcome foreigners. While not many cities have huge gates today, we have walls, we have barred windows, we have like bars on our windows, we have security systems, we have armed guards, we want to have a feeling of safety, locks on our doors. In the new city, that is not necessary. The gates will always be open. It's a sanctuary. It's a safe place of God's protection. But notice what else is happening People from the nations of the earth are streaming in to be with the Lord. Now, a lot of revelation that we didn't read is about kings and nations being crushed because they are against God. They're blasphemers. They do not want who God is. These are the people who love the Lord, who survive, who want to honor Jesus with their lives, who call, himself, call themselves by his name. What a redeeming picture when we think about how many times Jerusalem has been sacked and invaded and taken over by other nations. It was a prize to capture. Now people from all over the world come to give honor to God in the new Jerusalem. It's clear who is in charge. War is done. 
And verse 26 says that they are bringing the glory and the honor from their countries to pay homage to the Lord. What a powerful picture. Now, God's chosen people were always meant to be an example to all nations. We see this in the Old Testament over and over again, most notably from Isaiah, where it teaches, the ends of the earth are invited to look to God and be saved. The sons and the daughters of the stranger will learn to love God and serve him. Israel must declare God's glory among the Gentiles. We are here because of that command. The church, which began as a tiny Jewish sect, is now everywhere. And Revelation is a fulfillment of the prophecies and the promises that God made long ago. What an incredible picture. Kind of like the wolf and the lamb that Ed read about this morning. Nations once hated enemies who vied for power against one another, who fought for superiority, come together in unity to praise the Lord. They are still distinctive. John says you can still see what nations they are from, but with none of the old resentments. It's a new day. It made me think about the parade of countries at the Olympics, coming into the stadium to gather together for a common purpose. And here we see that the purpose is no longer to compete for who is best, but to honor and spend eternity with the Lord Almighty and one another. What is God's house like? It's full of light. Everywhere John looks, he sees the radiance of the Lord shining in power to illuminate all of the new heaven and new earth. Gone are the sun and the moon, which probably couldn't be seen anyway in the light of God's glory. There's no more darkness. There's no more need for any kind of lamp. God is the only light needed, which is amazing and rather hard to comprehend. But then we think how physical and spiritual darkness have always been a fearsome threat to humanity. In John's time, there was no electricity. There's no street lights. Scary things happen in the dark. In the deep of the night, our fears get heightened. We get anxious. In the dark of winter, when it's so dark, people get depressed. In scripture, darkness is used to symbolize evil and danger and judgment. Isaiah again says, the Lord will be your everlasting light. This is a promise that God's glory would be among the people both now and forever. That God's light will shine brighter than the spheres he created to give us light. What he gave us for warmth, what he gave us for life to thrive. Everyone here is dependent on the Lord. And when we think about how bright the angels must have been for the shepherds that night when they sang the glory of the Lord when Jesus was born. Think about how God's light just from himself fuels everywhere John can see. There's no shadow. There's no darkness. The light of God's glory is brilliant in splendor. And then, John says, how we get to see the Lord face to face. No one has ever done that. 
When we pray Moses' blessing as we leave the church and we pray, may God's face shine on you. That was the longing of God's people to get to look into God's eyes, to gaze at the contours of his face, to finally be fully connected with their loving creator, to know God fully and to understand what it feels like to be completely known by him, to have oneness with the Savior forever. This is the longing we have in our reality. And God's pure light means that there's nothing unclean. John says there's nothing unclean, there's nothing abominable, and there's nothing deceitful here. From the beginning, humans have tried to hide from God. No more. You don't have to wonder if someone is going to hurt you. You don't have to wonder if you can trust someone. There's no more fear. We know that hate and lying come from fear. You don't have to fight your own temptations and your own demons. There's no striving to survive. There's no disappointments. The kind of place Jesus is preparing for us has no sorrow and no pain. God's house is full of life. The angelic tour guide showed John the river of the water of life. Ezekiel also has a vision of a river flowing from the temple. And the psalmist says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And Jesus says, those who believe in me out of their hearts shall flow rivers of living water. Pure crystal water bringing nourishment wherever it goes to feed the tree of life. When I first read this, I kind of read it like 12 trees along the river, but it's one tree with 12 different kinds of fruit. And one commentator I read said, maybe this is to emphasize how believers have one source, one source of life, and that is God. Notice how John says, that this tree of life is a reversal of Eden. When Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, a cherub was placed there with a flaming sword to guard it. And now there's complete access to the tree, which is producing fruit for the healing of the nations. And we wonder, what does that mean? What does that mean, the healing of the nations? Well, the text isn't really clear about that, but when we think about the healing that needs to take place between people groups and nations, this is a powerful reality. This is a powerful picture. In God's house, people have reconciliation. There's forgiveness. There's peace. So let's think about Carrie's view of God's house again about how everyone is invited, but nobody is forced to go. And we think that that is, of course, because of free will. God gives us free will. But the Lord has a boundary for what is allowed and what is not permissible in his home. And we understand that. I bet you have boundaries for what you allow in your home and what you would not allow in your home. At some point, you would get to that place. But sometimes we're contrary people when it comes to this conversation because sometimes we might wonder, well, what's the big deal? God's love is deep and wide. He loves everyone regardless of their actions or their rebellion against him, and that's true. So then why can't everyone just come in? 
think that what John is showing us is how a perfect and holy Savior doesn't want his home to be defiled. Again, by willful humans. Remember the talk we had last week about how tired we are of sin and hatred and violence and war and going around in the cul-de-sac of our lives, of our own brokenness. Heaven is a place of new life where those things don't exist anymore. They have been destroyed by the blood of the Lamb who vanquished evil at every level. And when we think about Jesus' teaching about how no one comes to the Father except through him, this, this passage, this vision is a culmination of that teaching. Because there are a lot of religious beliefs about what salvation is and what life and death are about. But this is not a universalist, everybody goes to heaven kind of picture. Atonement was hard won by Jesus on the cross. And of course there's grace and we don't know who's going to be there. And God's love is deep and wide and there's mystery here. But we can't think that everyone who wants to go gets to go because they want to go. Or because we want it to be that way. If people don't see the need for God here, if they don't accept his forgiveness or cleansing here, that's not going to change once they get there. We want it to be a safe place for everyone. True eternal life comes from believing in the Lamb. And John says that those who have their names written in the book of life will have God's name reflected on their foreheads. So what is God's house like? It's a place of welcome and peace and joy. It's a place of belonging and adoration and beauty and refreshment. It's a place of light and truth and provision and safety. It's where we will be eternally joined to the Lord and one another. God's house is an incredible promise for those who trust Jesus and who want the Lord to be at the center of all that they are. Heaven was unveiled for John to see so the church would know what God means to be the source of our lives here. So the next time we find ourselves grousing about people that we think are too heavenly minded, let's examine our own souls. Truthfully, I have to fight being the center of my life all the time, don't you? It's difficult to keep wanting to learn and grow and what it means to love God and others, especially in the world that we live in. And sometimes we can forget what the point of life is about. So we ask God, God, please give us the strength and the truth and the love to be able to put you first in the most important place above our families, above ourselves, above our work, above what we want above the things that are our ideals, our identity, everything that we love here. Because Lord, that is the message of the gospel. So let's spend some time in prayer, allowing the spirit to speak to us. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.